should like to draw our attention this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you've looked at the outline in front of you, don't panic. past few weeks we've had one point and this week we've had now this week we have six points there's been some concern among some of you that we might be here for six hours we won't be here for six hours so you can all breathe a little easier I was reminded this week about why we're here We are here because we are putting ourselves under the authority of God's word. We are not here to stand above God's word and say, what is it that we like to hear? What is it that we want to hear? We're not here to stand above God's word and ask questions of God's word. Did God really say? We're not even here to act humble and say, well, we don't really know what God's word says. God has spoken propositional truth in his word that we can know and understand. And it's not prideful for us to say, this is what God's word says. And so, in a spirit of humility, put ourselves under The authority of God's word. This is maybe the fight of the church. And it's been a fight for God's people from the very beginning. And it's not a fight that's going to go away. It's not a fight that's going to come to an end. The authority of God's word is going to be questioned and undermined and it's going to come under attack again and again and again, wave after wave after wave. And we must be the people who say, no, we will not succumb. No, we will not listen to the world. We will listen to what God says. We will listen to his word because we are people under his word. And that's... Not just on Sunday mornings, although it is, it's every day of your life. Every day of your life and every day of my life is to be lived under the authority of God's word. It has a practical implication for us that we cannot and must not escape. It's not situational. When does the authority of God's word have an effect upon my life? Every second that you're alive, that's the answer. Every second that you're alive, God's word has authority in your life. Because we believe it is true. We believe that this is God's word to us. And we need God's word because left to ourselves, we would never figure it out. So in that spirit, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Beginning in verse 
8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. After I get through verse 9 of chapter 6, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. If you're looking for this text in your pew Bible, it can be found on page 555. This is the word of the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad adventure. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, And shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them this is vanity it is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, We pursue you through your word, and yet more importantly, 
at the same time you pursue us. We open your word and read it, O Lord, and yet your word reads us and shows us who we really are and what we really need in the light of your majestic holiness. Teach us, O Lord, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the musical, The Fiddler on the Roof, the main character is a man named Hevye, who is a poor milkman. At the beginning of that production, there is a song that he sings. It's a strange song in that it's a song that brings lament, but it's not sung like a lament. It's sung very boisterously and loud. And that song, you might know it, is called If I Were a Rich Man. And in that song, as he laments, he, he goes through all of the things that he wishes were his if he were a rich man. All of the possessions that he would have. All of the things that his wife would have as a rich man's wife. All of the, the influence, the people's ears that he would have, that he could give wisdom to, who would listen to him. Not because he knew anything, but just because he was rich. He sings about how, if he was a rich man, how he could even worship God better. How he could spend more time praying, reading the Bible, if he were a rich man. He knows one thing as he sings that song. If he was a rich man, he wouldn't have to work hard. He sings this song and it comes to this climax as he rehearses everything that he would do if he were a, real, a wealthy man, and he comes up to the end crying out to God with a question, a penetrating question, a question that really should haunt us. Tevye cries out and says, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb? Who decreed who I should be what I am? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man, if I were a rich man? I wonder if Tevye's question resonates in your heart. Is it that big of a deal, God, in the grand scheme of things? Does it make that much difference? I'm just one person, I'm just one family, one little speck on the, this earth in this big universe with so many other people, what would it hurt? What does it hurt if I am wealthy? And how does that in any way hinder you, God, from what you are doing in the world? It wouldn't get in your way. Maybe, in fact, we would reason with God and say, God, if you gave me wealth, it could actually help you. It could actually further what you're doing in the world. But what Tevye failed to take into account, and what we fail to take into account, is that God is concerned, and he is concerned about you. 
He is deeply concerned about your eternal soul. And what God knows and what God teaches us in his word is that the pursuit of wealth and prosperity in our lives can lead our lives to tragedy and to ruin. God desires and demands our complete devotion to him, to give him our allegiance. And even Tevye in the very first song, that song Tradition, in Fiddler on the Roof, describes all the traditions that the Jews hold. And part of that, he says, is to show their constant devotion to God. And he fails to, fails to realize that one of the dangers, one of the traps that would ensnare him and kill his devotion to God is the pursuit of wealth and prosperity. God's vast, eternal plan is to redeem people through his, through his Son, the sacrifice of His Son, so that people would be freed from the dominion of sin, from the domain of darkness. And that includes being shackled to the, the desires of this world. God's vast, eternal plan is for people to be freed from their sin, and yet, when we ask God that question, God, would it spoil some vast eternal plan for us to be wealthy, for us to be rich, for us to pursue that? That's the very reason why Christ came, that's the very reason why Christ died, so you wouldn't have to be concerned with that, so you wouldn't have to be shackled to that, so you wouldn't have to be constrained by that. The pursuit of wealth will not answer all of the questions of your life. It will not fix all of your problems. It will not heal the hurting in your life. But what is often our belief? What is often the belief in the world? Money answers everything. How often do we fail to see that running after wealth can have a spiritually damning effect on our souls? In that movie production of Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye, as he sings out that last line, you remember the action that happens as he says that last line? He takes one final step for his dance. Where does he step? Right in a cow pot. As if to say, you've stepped in it, Tevye. You've stepped in it. You weren't looking out. You weren't guarding yourself. You weren't protecting yourself. You let down your guard to demonstrate how much you cherish wealth and money and prosperity, but you've stepped in it. And how many of us, without looking where we are going, without thinking about it, without having our guard up, been going along with the culture, having been trying to keep up with the Joneses, having been entertaining the messages that fallen mankind give us about why we should pursue wealth, why we, why we must pursue wealth, why we would be crazy not to pursue wealth. How many of us have unwittingly stepped in it? And why have we stepped in it? Because we have quietly, over time, one step by one step, one decision by one decision, have chosen greed over God. 
That's what the Bible calls this sin, greed. And let us think for a moment about some realities of greed that intersect with our lives. First, if you consider yourself poor this morning, I think we have to think of that on relative terms. What do I mean by that? We in America are some of the most wealthy people the world throughout the centuries has ever known. The luxuries that you experience today are some people that for millennia they would only dream about. If you woke up this morning in a room that was climate controlled by AC set at a temperature that you desired. If you went to a faucet this morning and had instantaneous clean water, not just water, but hot and cold water. If you went to the fridge and had fresh fruit that you didn't pick off the tree or off of the vine. If you had pasteurized milk from cows that you didn't milk. If you had eggs from chickens that you didn't raise. If you had fresh butter that you didn't churn. If you made toast from bread that you didn't bake. If you were in some kind of motorized vehicle this morning to get yourself here. I could go on. But those are things that in our world are luxuries. Only the wealthy have those things. Glimpse of how wealthy we are, comparatively speaking to the world. Also, do not think this morning that just because you are relatively more wealthy than others, that somehow you have escaped greed. That somehow greed cannot and does not affect you. You don't have to be poor to be greedy. The wealthy can be just as greedy. In fact, someone once asked John Rockefeller, how much money is enough money? What did he say? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And one other reminder this morning. If you think about greed and you think, well, that's not really my struggle. I don't really have a problem with greed just because that might not be a struggle right now does not mean that you will never struggle with greed. Take heed lest you fall. And Solomon is going to make this case from the book of Ecclesiastes because the pursuit of wealth and prosperity is one of the vain ways mankind throughout the ages has tried to make sense of life. It's one of the ways that we have tried to find meaning and purpose to our own lives. We could so easily think that our greed can somehow lift the fog of mysteriousness that clouds our life and clear the air so that we will see clearly and understand what life is all about. But when in reality it leaves us blind and groping around in the darkness, bringing great detriment and even destruction to our own lives. So, what warnings does Solomon give us about greed? And then finally, what remedy does he give us? Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, greed multiplies injustice. Greed multiplies injustice. Our verses begin with the oppression of the poor. With something that could be observed in Solomon's day. Something that could still be observed in our own day. And along with this oppression of the poor, 
became a violation of justice and righteousness. The very two qualities that the king of Israel was to uphold and to promote to ensure that were carried out in the land, justice and righteousness, these things were gone. The idea here is that they were robbed from the land. Robbed from the people, robbed from the oppressed. It is a severe and ominous scene of the oppression of the poor. It's a demonstration that there was not love for one's neighbor and therefore also not a love for God that was happening. And what does Solomon say? If you see the oppression of the poor, if you see the violation of justice and righteousness, fix it. Is that what Solomon says? Do everything you can within your means and your power to take control and remedy the problem. Does Solomon say it's your responsibility to ensure that justice and righteousness are restored? No, he doesn't say that. Does he say, when you see awful things happening around you, stand amazed. It should shock and awe you. It should, it should make you stand in wonder and amazement. How often are we stuck here? You see all the things in the world and you say, I cannot believe that that is happening in our world. Have you ever said that? You read the news, watched the news? What kind of world do we live in? What kind of day and age do we live in? I am completely and utterly amazed by all of the injustice I see going on around me in the world and how easy it is for us to get stuck in amazement, something that our social media outlets like Facebook and Twitter like to continually promote. But what does Solomon say? When you see the oppression of the poor, when you see justice and righteousness being violated, don't stand amazed. Don't be surprised. Don't be taken aback. This is what happens when people are in power. They take advantage of other people. They take advantage of them in order to get what they want, in order to get more, in order to remain above people with wealth and status and honor and there are various levels of officials and it appears that all of the levels are corrupt there are higher ones who take advantage of the lower ones there are even higher officials who take advantage of those under them and the poor get the brunt of it all because there is no one lower than them don't stand amazed because in this fallen world you live in what do we expect? We expect people to act like they are enslaved to sin, and that's exactly what we see here. People who are living according to their own passions to get what they want. Only, only God can remedy this. Only God can fix this. And some people interpret these verses to say the problem in all of this is bureaucracy. It's all the red tape. It's all the various levels. But there's a theologian named Philip Reich, and he says this, the problem is not bureaucracy, the problem is tyranny. And tyrannical leadership, full of greed, only multiplies injustice upon injustice. What is it that gets you out of such tyrannical rule? It's a king who's committed to cultivated fields. What could be the meaning behind this? Well, it could be that the 
wealthy and the rich had bought up all of the land and had left it fallow. They hadn't planted anything. They hadn't done anything with the land. But a king who's committed to cultivated fields would make sure that the fields are planted, tended to, cared for. And in Israel, that was one of the ways that the poor were cared for. You would leave the corners and the edges of your field so that the poor could come and they could glean from those fields so that they could care for themselves, so that they could provide it for themselves. And so a king committed to cultivated fields was a great thing in the land because it meant that the poor got to eat. And here's one of the uh, principles that comes out of these verses. As we think about the greed of this tyrannical leadership, their greed affected other people. Their greed wasn't confined merely to themselves, but it actually hurt other people. It damaged other people. It destroyed other people. Let us not be so blind to think that our greed is just our problem, but that our greed will actually affect other people. It could actually hurt other people. It could actually destroy other people. And what do we need? We need a king. We need a king who is committed to watching out and caring for his people. And that's exactly what we get in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Look at Psalm chapter 72. Psalm chapter 72. Psalm 72. Who, who wrote this psalm? You see that right there at the beginning, don't you? Of Solomon. Right? So Solomon's writing this psalm. He's talking about this king. And it would appear as Solomon's writing that he's thinking of a future king, a king that's going to come, a king that's going to right wrongs, a king who's going to put things back in order the way that they're supposed to be. And look at what he says. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor uh, of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. That's what Solomon is saying as he looks forward to this promised king who God is going to bring. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does. He's the king who comes and restores all justice and all righteousness. Who cares for the poor and who crushes the oppressors. That's the king that we need. To overcome the injustice that comes because of our greed. Number two. Greed multiplies anxiety. Greed multiplies anxiety. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. These next verses are put very... Simply for us. In verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with, with his income. Solomon says that this is vanity. It is a mystery. All that the lover of money can do is get more stuff. Get more and more to consume to become a fat cat. And what advantage do all of the material things have for the one who has bought them? All he can do is look at them. He just looks at all of his stuff. And tries to find satisfaction in that. Look at all the stuff that, that I have. It is like he has so much stuff, yet he is paralyzed to actually be able to do anything. And so all he can do there is sit there and look at it. 
And then we get this proverb from Solomon. The worker has sweet sleep. He works hard. He labors hard. He may eat much. He may eat little after his labor. But he sleeps well. Proverbs 15, 16, and 17 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. like that's the contrast we see here this laborer sweet sleep sweet rest even if he has a little but the full stomach of the rich will not allow him to sleep the rich is restless and will not find sleep i think what is being pointed out here is that the rich will continue to worry about their riches that in fact wealth doesn't alleviate your anxiety in life That it will not bring the peace and the calmness to your soul that you really want, but it actually piles on more anxiety, more worry, more fretting about all of your wealth, about all of your possessions, and makes your life miserable because riches were never meant to make you happy. Wealth is an insecure basis for happiness. And this is where we often constantly fool ourselves and deceive ourselves because we can get caught up in a life with all of our stuff. But the issue is not much how is not how much stuff you have. The issue is your heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 and following. This is Jesus. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How do you evaluate your life? Jesus says, your life is not to be evaluated by how much stuff you have. How big your bank accounts are. How full your garages are. That is not the evaluation of a good life. Doesn't matter how many vacations you take or where you take your vacations or what kind of car that you drive. Jesus says, Life is not about that. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I shall tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the greedy who treasures up for himself or herself wealth in this earth and who only get anxiety and fretfulness and what's going to be the answer if that's your life when you stand before God and said and he says now you must give an account for your life now you must give an account for what you've done now you must give an account for what you have pursued and all that you thought that you had you've built bigger barns for all of your stuff that doesn't mean anything. Number three, greed multiplies loss. Greed multiplies loss. 
Solomon now moves to some evils that he's seen and experienced under the sun. And the first evil he calls a grievous evil or a sickening evil. It, it happens and it makes him sick that this kind of thing would even happen in the world. This man gains wealth, he hoards all his wealth for years, and then he loses all of his wealth in a, a bad venture. And I think what's ironic here is that this man who's hoarded all this wealth uses this venture to what? To get more wealth. He says, ah, here is a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm going to go into that. And what happens? He quickly empties his bank accounts. And he has nothing. Nothing to show for it. And it doesn't just affect him, it affects his children, doesn't it? He's a father, he has a son, he has nothing in his hand to give his son. He has no inheritance whatsoever now. He's lost it all, it's all gone. In one moment of foolish irrationality, it's done with, it's over with, it's gone. He's lost it all. But then Solomon does something, he brings us into this truth and says this, he was going to lose it anyways. (laughs) Why? Because he was going to die. And there's nothing you take with you when you die. You lose everything. It's all gone. Naked did you come from your mother? You brought nothing into this world. You didn't drive out of your mother's womb in an Escalade. You didn't drive out of your mother's womb with fistfuls of cash in your hands to pay for that delivery that took place in that hospital. You came with nothing, and guess what? When you leave, it's the same thing you will leave with Nothing. First Timothy 6, 7 says this, For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. The greedy will multiply loss. They will have nothing to show for their lives, for everything that they have done, for everything that they've hoarded. And if the greedy haven't experienced it yet, just wait. They will lose it all. And you see just how desperate of a state that this man is in, because then it says, what? There he is, sitting in darkness, eating alone in the vexation and sickness of his own life. In their culture, Jewish culture, eating was a social thing. You did it with other people around you. The worst thing to do was to eat alone. But here is this man, he's all alone. He has no one. He has nothing It's like he's already dead. And he had so much. But it didn't last. His loss only multiplied. And you might think, well, I can protect myself. I can make better decisions with my money. I can do things differently. But guess what? You will never escape death. You one day are going to lose everything, everything that you love, everything that you hold on to, everything that you cherish, that you grip in your hands so tightly, one day it will all be gone. And then what? What will you have to show for your life? What will you have done? How will your life be evaluated by that stuff that you were holding on to? Or by the life that you live? Number four, greed multiplies hopelessness. Greed multiplies hopelessness. 
chapter 6 now. We're going to skip a few verses here. We'll come back to them in a moment. 6, verse 1, we see Solomon moves to another evil. He's, there's one who God has given wealth, possessions, and honor. I mean, this guy, he has everything. He doesn't lack one single thing. Everything that he has, he wants. If you were to look at this guy's life, he has the good life. He has the life that everyone else is jealous of. Everyone else wants his life. He is on top of the world, right? Yet, what does it say? God does not give him the power to enjoy the things that he has been given, but a stranger will enjoy them. Someone he doesn't even know, a stranger, a foreigner, will enjoy everything that he has. Would you ever look at these verses and ask, why? Why would God do this? Why would God give someone all of these wealth and possessions and honor, yet God would not give them the ability to enjoy that? Why would God do that? doesn't make any sense. Why does God do that? God does it, I believe, to show His goodness and His common grace that He does not give them the ability to enjoy it because He knows that that would only drive them further away from Himself. It is that ability not to enjoy that is meant to drive them to their knees and tell them that there is something more important, more necessary for life, something of greater eternal value and significance than all of their wealth and possessions and honor that they have been given. But the point is even driven further into our hearts when we see this exaggeration. And Solomon builds on this exaggeration by saying, now let's pretend that this man lived thousands of years. He lived a long life, 2,000 years. Let's say he lived 2,000 years. Let's say he fathered 100 children. Now, to some of you, that might seem like a nightmare. But in Jewish culture, the more children that you have, the more blessed you were, the better life you had. So here it is. He lives thousands of years. He has 100 children. Yet what? He's not able to enjoy it. He's not able to be satisfied with it. Where does it get him? It gets him nowhere. He has no burial, which shows a sign of God's displeasure. And he never knows any satisfaction in life. And what does Solomon say? A stillborn child is better than that man. Is that harsh? God, a, st a stillborn child is better than that man? A stillborn child who goes straight from being born, straight into the ground, they have it better than the man who fathers a hundred children and lives 2,000 years. But is not satisfied with God's good things. The stillborn has known nothing of this fallen world. It has not seen the sun. It has not known the pain and the toil of this world. It has not known the restlessness of this world. It finds rest immediately for it goes straight to the grave. But 2,000 years of restlessness, not being able to enjoy the good things of life, that is a miserable life. That is a futile life. That is an empty life. That is a hopeless life. To find no enjoyment in life and no rest in death. It doesn't matter how many children you have. It doesn't matter how long you live. It doesn't matter how much you look like you've been blessed by God. That is a miserable and terrifying experience. 
that is the epitome of living with no hope in this world. A long, sustained, binding hopelessness. Number five. Greed multiplies greed. Greed multiplies greed. These are verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6. The final warning. The greedy man's appetite's never satisfied. Greed begets more greed. The lust is never quenched. And so often we think, if I just had fill in the blank, if I just had, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. You ever notice how that marker always seems to move? You would say, if I just had, you fill in the blank, and then you get that, and then there's something else that takes its place, isn't there? Some other blank that comes into life. Well, now if I just had this, now if I just get here. Greed never is satisfied. It's like the leech who has two daughters that are never satisfied, that never say enough. This is the problem we continue to see in our world. Insatiable appetites and desires that make us wander through this life and we never find contentment. We never find rest. There's two questions here in these verses. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? It would appear that a question would say, none, there is no advantage. Both the wise man and the fool are susceptible to this insatiable appetite. They're both susceptible to this pitfall. But the second question gives a different answer than the first. What advantage does the poor have who knows how to conduct himself? It appears that the poor does have some advantage in that he knows how to live and how to conduct his life, and that's unpacked in the next verse. Better is the sight of the eyes. That's how the poor live. It's how they have to live. It's the sight of their eyes. To say it another way, they are content with what they have, what they can see, and it affects the way that they live their life. But those with the wandering appetite, those who are never satisfied, those whose greed is only perpetuated, live their lives in vain, like chasing after the wind. And that wandering appetite, and those who have that are people who are lost. They live in a delusion. It is the one with the wandering appetite who is deluded because they believe they are living the good life. They believe they have it all together. And who foolishly believe that they can have it all together and still be good with God. But the problem that there is is that there's no end to it. There's no end point. They will never be satisfied. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life still remains and the things of this world have so filled their view and have so dominated their life that they have no view of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve both of those masters. And yet, how many have the deluded idea that they can? They can somehow be different. They can somehow find a loophole. That There is an exception, but they can't serve two masters. You can't say, I love God and love money at the same time. Or listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you hear about that craving? That craving for riches and wealth has led some people to wander away from the faith. It's brought destruction and caused harm, spiritual harm, eternal harm to their lives. All because they pursued wealth. Don't be so foolish to say that the love of money and possessions and prosperity isn't eternally dangerous. It is. And people will spend eternity in hell because they wanted to be rich Jesus tells a parable of soils, and one of those soils is the soil where there's thorns growing. And he says the sower goes out and he throws the seed on the ground, and some of this seed falls on thorns. And Jesus says the thorny soil is like the one who heard the word of God. They heard what God said, they heard what God wanted, they heard even the gospel of salvation. Yet what happened? Wealth and possessions choked out the word in their life. They were so close, yet that seed never took root. It never bore any fruit. It never brought salvation because they were more concerned about the cares and the possessions and the wealth of this life than they were about having their souls right with God. We have to see Pursuing wealth and pursuing money isn't the good life, it's a miserable life, and that life is meant to expose our need for God and must drive us to find our contentment in Him. And here's the last point, finally. We've made it, you've made it, point six. God-given contentment multiplies joy. This is the climax of these verses. This is the good news. God has already given you everything that you need to find enjoyment in life. God has given you what you need to be content. And here it is now, this, this man again has been given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And it goes on to say, this is a gift from God. This isn't something that he's earned. This isn't something that he's deserved. This isn't because of his privileged status. No, it's a gift from God. It's God's grace upon his life. Not only has he given them this, but he's given them the ability to enjoy it, the ability to be content. And if God has given you the ability to be content and enjoy what you have, it's done so that your focus and your love and your devotion is on him. That's why he's given it to you. Because you know the one whom to praise for what you have. How often, though, do we have all of this stuff, and yet we're still discontent. What does that say about our view of God? That God's gift is somehow insufficient? That God is somehow not enough? 
that God himself is somehow lacking? Do you receive enjoyment and joy in this life as a gift from God? Do you know what Solomon says here? That even though you have to go through life in this fallen world, with all of its pain, with all of its hardship, with all of its toil and striving and difficulty, that God can keep your heart occupied with joy. Think about that. God can keep your heart occupied, can keep your heart busy with joy. That even though the days have been difficult and hard, they have not stripped you of your joy because your contentment and your joy transcends the things of this world and they have found rest in someone greater. Your contentment and your joy is now found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. That's why Jesus came. I came that you might, ha might have joy and have joy abundantly, that your joy might be full. Let a little bit of joy Abundant, full joy. And Jesus says this in John 6, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. How does the Son of Man, how does Jesus Christ give you the food that endures to eternal life? He does it by giving himself, by sacrificing himself on the cross. By bearing our sin for which we deserve God's punishment and death. And by giving us his righteousness as those who put their faith and trust in him and in him alone. So that now we can do what he tells us to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. And so then when you hear that song, if I were a rich man, if I were a rich man, you can say, no, I am a rich man because I have Christ and I found all that I need in him and I find contentment in him. And then you say with Paul, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Let us be content, O oh Lord, in you. Let us be content in our Savior. Let him be our greatest treasure Lord, and let us then be occupied with joy in our hearts because we have known the Savior that you have sent, Jesus Christ. And that he might receive all of the glory from the way that we live our lives. Not focused on the things of this world, not focused on wealth, possessions, honor, status, but focused on him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.